Welcome to the Pedagogy Toolkit. This week's episode is the second of our two-part series on the high-impact practice of writing intensive courses. In part one, James Anomaly spoke with Dana Blair, coordinator of the University of Arkansas's writing studio, about the importance of writing across the curriculum. This week, we discuss what that might look like in different disciplines and strategies for including more writing in your courses. On the one hand, this seems like sort of a silly topic for us to discuss specifically with online classes as well, because it's writing, so it's not necessarily right in person. But I think that's that hammers home the point that being clear in your instructions in an online mm-hmm. course, it being clear in your instructions everywhere, but it's even that much more important when you're not standing in front of the students doing yes. <laughs> doing that. You need to be yeah. super, super clear. You can't convey anything by tone of voice or or gesture or anything like mm-hmm. that. And you're not available uh, immediately for clarification. So uh, being clear is great for all instruction, but in the online space, especially the it's asynchronous critical. on. Yeah, it's critical. And that's like kind of the pressure cooker where we're like, oh, wait. This worked fine face-to-face, but nobody's going to know what to do here. Well, and some of those classes are huge, too, are big. And teachers, I think, or students are – instructors are afraid of how many papers they're going to have to grade right. or how many journals they're yes. going to have to grade right. or how many – so – And that's a legit fear. We got uh, We have to take that one. So you're not a bad person if no. you don't want to spend 80 hours at, at the end of the term trying to catch up on the final project. So, so. I've, I've heard a couple of really interesting um, approaches. So in an online class, one of the primary ways that students write, certainly in the, the humanities courses that I, I work on, are in discussion boards. So they mm-hmm. absolutely need to be clear because they do have another person reading what they are right. discussing. Yeah. They do have a very specific audience. They do need to be um, very clear. But sometimes the instructors get really bogged down with having to read the first you know, response and then read the responses to the responses and then respond to those responses and put in the yeah. – and it starts to get really – and I recently came across the idea – to do those as peer review, to do discussion mm-hmm. boards as peer review, huh. which I thought was a great. There you go. So they they are assigned in Blackboard, particularly, but in almost any um, LMS, you can set up a peer review system where it will automatically assign things. So a student can respond to a prompt that is automatically assigned to two other people to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And that way you're guaranteeing some response. They're being given yeah. something to respond to. They're, that response is a real person who is getting a real piece of feedback. And then this, the the speaker that was talking about this, um, this was at a conference I, I was visiting um, last, last month. And they then reviewed the review. Mm-hmm. And, and reviewed it not just in terms of responding to the discussion or responding to the questions. They also reviewed the the way the person responded, their rhetorical skill. And so it really ended up, they said they got so much more engagement from the students, so I much bet. better writing, so yeah. much better because they yeah. were – there were real people, and they were getting feedback. I'm eager to try that. I haven't. I haven't stumbled across. I have that a yet. couple um, instructors that are trying a similar 
approach uh, that we're building right now. So we'll see how it how it goes. But I loved that idea of responding to the response. Yeah, I was working Mm -hmm. with one yesterday, and this just related a little bit. What he wanted, we've talked about rubrics, and and he wanted to do discussion graded discussions. And he said, how would you even do a rubric about a graded discussion? Uh, um, and, and I said, well, let's talk about what you want them to do in the discussion. It, it turned out this was so clear cut and easy in his case. The book for his field, this, the the most important book is 10 years old. And there's not really anything he didn't feel since then that, that really fills that gap. I mean, you can find article here and there or whatever, but there's not another book or an updated version of that book. So in his discussion, you know, he's, you know, he's already presented as content, you know, those chapters from the book. What mm-hmm. he wanted them to do was close the gap between the that cutoff and now, right? Go find an article, go go find a concept or whatever, or talk about how it's evolved culturally, mm-hmm. politically, scientifically since that, since the book stopped. So that was there. There you go. There's one of the uh, one of the lines on that rubric is um, does it incorporate research? Um within the past, past a certain date certain days sure right? you could do that with any of them as one of your lines um yeah and it just happened to be just teed up perfectly in this one but I, that's I, having that rubric that's again having that rubric and i loved having the idea of the instructor can then go back and with the with the ones that were um responding to each other peer reviewing each other that's all laid out there the the Instructor only has to really go in and get in if it looks, if something flags, if yeah. something looks yeah. off, they can glance over it. Similarly with journals, if you're not grading the explicit grammar of your students, you can you can almost always glance over those yeah. and know if they're hitting mm-hmm. those pieces. And in that respect, you can have huge classes do journals. Yeah. I I remember when I first started teaching online a million years ago, and I was still in kind of the old school way of, of you turned in a paper, and I'm going to write out like this big, lengthy thing of feedback. And I felt bad if I wasn't giving you that. And I also felt bad if I hadn't essentially copy edited the paper, which is dumb. All this is uh-huh. dumb. This is all the way not to do it. <laughs> so as I got further along, I built my own rubric, you know, and um, and the students really liked it because they could see, oh, I didn't include a page number. I lost a point. Mine was very overly specific. Um, but but it had all the bits. And I discovered that once I'd ticked off all the boxes in my rubric and it had calculated the grade uh, and I had decided how close they were on their argument, which was a big wiggle room uh, one there, um, I, and and the, the number shook out right. It's like, okay, they've got an 85 and they did these things. They didn't do these things. It was easy for me to add a three-sentence Hey, pretty good job here yes. next time and pick out the thing that's going to make their writing better to, if they were to focus on it. Next time, I would focus a little more on this. And I, suddenly I was able to grade much more efficiently and they were able to get much more targeted feedback that they actionable feedback that they could it's use. Pri- prioritizing your yeah. goals as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, with by, by creating a rubric, you've prioritized what the goals are, what yeah. the students what need to counts. be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing I've heard as like a thread through what you you guys are saying about ways you've implemented this with rubrics and in your courses is the idea of layering writing over what you're already planning to do. If you see it as something extra, like we have our class and I also want to have writing be part of my class, 
it's going to become a burden for everyone. But, it, right. you know, if you layer it over, you know, well, I know I want my students to, you know, be able to analyze, you know, responses, to analyze journals, to feel familiar with research in the field, to ask themselves questions as they read a text, whatever. You can usually layer and achieve a lot of those goals with one well-designed assignment. Um, and there's no perfect assignment. You're always going to go in, think you covered all the gaps, try something, and then you'll be like, well, now I know these other things that that I need to tweak. But you know, you're going to be a lot better off than if you're just like, well, I already have these assignments. I already have these things. And also let's add writing. Like that's that's just going to become a burden and it's never going to become part of the habits or goals of the class. And students will feel that yeah. <laughs> just like you. Will. Right. And, and front loading happens at, or front loading makes writing a lot easier. Um, as you're talking about getting that rubric built out beforehand, um, having them figure out their research question with elevator pitches, the more you can front load, the better your final papers are going to be if it's building up to a paper, right. which means they're going to be really easy to grade. A well-written paper is a, yeah. I was about to say, is a joy to grade. It well, is when it's, it's compared to a non-well-written paper trying to explain and articulate why it's sort of a pleasure when it, you know you're actually like yeah. having a, a nice conversation with somebody about something you know that you care about because you assigned it and that that uh, that they've done a good job of 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 serving up back to you. Um, yeah, I keep coming back to this idea of of writing as a conversation in mm-hmm. my mind. That if we can get students to understand that writing is always a conversation, and it doesn't mean that you're you're audiences responding to you right away but there is always another there's there's an there's another entity whether that's your future self reading it later whether that's Mm -hmm. (laughs) your brain um handling when you're just privately journaling it's there's always a a second there's always a it's always a conversation i had this discussion with this argument with my my (laughs) husband about it the other day where i said something about a conversation and he said well they have conversations all the time that like they you know if they go ask directions from somebody that's not conversation that's that's talking to that's asking a question that's not the same thing as having a conversation because i would suggest that a conversation requires give and take and so if you know that there's going to be some sort of taking in of that not just not mm-hmm. just putting it out there and we're done. That's like, I'm just well, going to write my journal, turn it in. And that's all. Yeah. Well, and that's an excellent point. Um, I think if you can help students identify, you know, who's on the other end of the conversation and what you're asking them to do, are you asking them to reconsider something? Do you want them to learn more about something? Do you want them even like a journal? Do you want your future self to reflect or remember something? You know, what is the purpose of this that, that you're doing right now. I one of the kind of ways, one of the best ways this hit home for students as I taught different writing courses was um, I had a, a comp course that I designed as an advocacy course. Um, and it was my favorite one I taught because I had the opportunity to break down an assignment over the course of a semester, kind of Mr. Miyagi style. <laughs> you're just gonna learn a little bit right here, and then in the end you'll have this really well-written advocacy communication of whatever kind. But I had them start, um, I had a colleague give me this idea and I was like, this is brilliant. I had them start with a vlog rant. Like they had to record a rant. (laughs) 
And we, I, we looked at the genre of a rant. What classifies something as a rant? And they all started by ranting about their chosen topic. And then later they came back and decided, how do I make this different? How do I make it a conversation? Because a rant, they decided, is you're talking at someone. And a conversation is you're trying to engage with someone. This, this is awesome because I one of my jokes has been that I begin with hyperbole and work toward nuance. <laughs> this is just a personality trait for me. I, so in my head, it start a lot of things start off as copying attitude or or a rant, and then over time, I like okay, <laughs> there yeah. are subtleties that now that I've got that out of my system, I think it's yes. an excellent idea, um, and especially. You know, then you you've opened it up for a reflection piece. Later, they can compare where they started mm-hmm. and where they got. So we we can we can just keep we can just keep doing this, right? Back to your, it is a conversation. It can be a conversation with your former self yeah. in this scenario. Back to your bit about piecemealing, or I can't remember how you put it. Um, these bigger assignments into smaller bits. Uh, yes. Another thing I did in the research class, and because it had been useful to me when I was in grad school. Um, I, I had worked with a professor who did annotated bibliographies, like book length ones um, Uh of fields. Nobody does this anymore uh, because, you know, this is a a database thing now. But yeah, (laughs) but but doing my own research and coming through, you know, hundreds of articles, it was very handy to write little blurbs about what they were about and also whether Uh and also a judgment of whether I thought they were going to be useful or not to my own thing. Um, So I think that like. If you're if it is a research based long paper type thing, having them do the mm-hmm. annotated bibliography early, yes, and they do it again. When that research class, I think we did it twice or maybe three times, you know. And each time mm-hmm. they only had to find like two, you know, go find two, and then this one you got to find three, and this one you got to find three more. And so by the end of the time, yeah. you've got all this stuff, and you've actually had to. And I wasn't checking to see if they did a good job of summarizing it. I didn't care. Yeah. I was just trying to like front load. That was your term. I, I was trying to yeah. front load some of the writing because you could take that stuff directly from your your annotations and use it in your paper if you've done it well. Um, yes. And if you let them know that too, then that probably gives them an, another reason to do it and to do it well. Sure. You know, an online course, there's a, an online program, the Emson Doctor, uh, Doctor of Nursing Practice doctor of nursing practice. There we go. The DNP program over in the nursing school. Yeah. Um, we've worked with them to develop a writing across the curriculum program. And we started with their capstone projects. They really wanted their students to improve the quality and, and quantity and length at everything with their capstone projects. And, you know, the way that happened was by breaking it down to all of the parts. What skills are you asking them to do? And they started breaking down, okay, you're going to do the background and significance and, uh, you know, the literature review in this course. This whole course is just your rough drafts for those two. And then the next course, you know, you'll be working on the next segments. And we did, um, we had an IRB study on just the quality of of writing and uh, also the student experience, you know, what, how confident were they? Did they enjoy it? And it was dramatic and like statistically significant improvement in all those areas because you know the faculty liked it better, the students liked it better. And I feel like they took more away from their project because it didn't become crap, I have this capstone writing project. It became thinking through their project is a proposal. So they got to really engage with and think through the steps of their proposal 
and end up with a nice finished piece at the oh, end, but only because of that front loading. I love that. I mean, because honestly, to take a tired metaphor, if, 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 you, if you say, write a 10-page paper and get, with about that much direction, you're basically walking up to someone saying, build a house, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> but you don't build houses like that either, you know? You build a foundation, you, you make decisions about the dimensions, you do all these things first, and you, you, you build it in layers, right? And so if we can make those layers more deliberate and use those as assignments, then they're lower stakes, there's more of them. And by the time you get to the final paper, it ought to be something that you can just like say, oh, this is great. And of course, it ought to be great because they've already done the work. And there's a big overarching framework for why they're doing each of those pieces. They're not doing pieces, 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 pieces. And then at the end, someone goes, oh, by the way, grab all those pieces and throw them together. It's there is an overarching narrative structure, basically. It's a role of instructional design. Don't spring it on them. Be very clear. Not, it's not the man behind the curtain. It's, you know, it's your advisor helping you along well, the way. I'm, I'm a big <laughs> proponent for when developing classes, when building classes, is thinking of them as having a narrative structure. And there is a lot of research behind that, that that's a, that's people yeah. learn better when they can when they can place it into a narrative a large kind of framework. Whole. And so if you can build something that is that larger framework making sense of what's happening, that's and that's all that that's what that does, I think, by by saying you're gonna be doing this big thing and here's the blueprints for it. Yep. You're giving them all those blueprints and then step by step instructions. You're giving them a recipe. It's yep. yeah. Huh. I like that. Kind of. So as we were talking, it reminded me, um, we, we did a workshop with a teaching and faculty support center last semester. Um, and as part of that, it was on designing writing assignments. And as part of that, I thought, well, you know, the experts on this are going to be our, our student consultants who work with students are going to have the best input on what makes a clear assignment and what doesn't, because they see that the fallout. <laughs> they see the fallout of if people are confused by assignments and mm-hmm. they see like patterns from classes all over campus about what makes clear assignments that students understand. And it really does come down to these principles. You know, when we were asking them what makes for an effective, understandable prompt, they all talked about, you know, a clear statement about what you want, one to two sentences that encompass the actual demand. You know, if you're going to give some background, like, you know, they said, Oftentimes, professors will think they're helping students by giving them kind of some thought-provoking content, like here's how you might brainstorm. They said, divide that out from your actual required goals or the goals of the paper. Um, So simplifying and just being really explicit with your goals. And that was the theme in the rubric as well. They said, the rubric is great. Picking, allowing students to pick from a few general topics always helps with their investment. Um, You know. Being simple, having buy-in and breaking it down is going to be the most effective and having students know what they're doing and doing it well. I think giving, well, I think we're going to have to do a podcast episode at some point about doing, giving students choice, because I think that's, mm-hmm. that's such a, it's such a basic component to good teaching period. Yeah. And doing it in a way that makes it manageable, right? Yeah. Because you, uh, we, we had a whole hallway conversation earlier when you and Alex mostly were talking about these first-year experience classes you're teaching and the ways in which you had a good idea. What was yeah, your Yeah, I ended up giving mine, um, and some of this, 
this I'm taking uh, the framework for UP and mm-hmm. we're doing the Socratic seminar. And um, I had, you know, four or five topics that they could choose from, but I was able to put them in a form, ask the class to rank them so that I could get an overall view of what are the top two. And then ask them also to say if they had one that they had strong feelings against something that Mm -hmm. they didn't want to talk, that it was uncomfortable for them to talk about, that it was um, that they knew they weren't going to be able to be a good conversationalist with with that particular one. And then I was able to take those and assign the groups based on their first one or two. And it made it nice and easy. And I'm getting such great. Yeah. I love that so much. They're so much more engaged in it. And the, the topics that that uh, we gave them, they are fantastic because they are about things that are happening in college right now. And they they seem to be completely engaged. They have personal opinions. They can research it. They can do all of those yeah. things. But they would be, if I had assigned them a topic, it would never mm-hmm. have, it would never would have gone. Even yes. if I had assigned them one of those topics, I think. I think just the mere act of being told they had a choice. Yeah, I mean, this this will sound like it's out of left field, but I remember this study I read a long time ago about prisons. <laughs> I actually mentioned that yeah. the Stanford prison experiment. Well, this not that one. Okay, but uh, this, we talked about in this that one. scenario. <laughs> in this scenario, the whole that they had some prison somewhere had instituted like movie night, and they're like, I know we'll do something for the prisoners. We'll have movie night, but then as a security concern, they forced everyone to go to movie night, right? And, uh-huh. and people hated it, and violence went up. <laughs> <laughs> on movie night night because of the, they were being forced to do one more thing, you know, uh-huh. they're already forced yeah. to do many things. And they said, hey, and somebody, somebody said, hey, you know what? Let's just let's just find a way to give them the option to go or not go. And it immediately calmed everything down. There weren't that many people yeah. who didn't want to go, but feeling that it was their choice uh, just calmed everyone down. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a very human thing. None of us like to be told what to do, even if it's something that we may ultimately be okay with. If you're telling me to do it, I'll probably kick back a little. Sure. It's human. Dostoevsky told us it's human. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be a a spring in a barrel organ. I think that's his metaphor. Um, Yes. Notes from underground. But uh, yeah, just that that level of choice. Go to movie night or don't go to movie night. So yeah, you can do it in ways that aren't too onerous on you. Well, and I think... That's and it's about finding that balance between giving mm-hmm. the students complete free reign. Right. You can write about anything you want. See, that's not helpful Ta-da! for most people. That's not <laughs> no. helpful. Um, but if you give them a choice, or if you guide them into finding what they're, right. you know, what they they want to do. I've had students do uh, interviews of each other to mm-hmm. find their research topics and recommend research topics to each other. Oh, that's based, great. Based on. I mean, just little sort of getting to know you interviews and made sure it was mm-hmm. students who didn't actually know each other particularly well so that yeah. all they're going off is these answers to these questions and then say, it sounds like you're really interested in cars. Why don't you Google the word car and controversy and see what comes up? Yeah. <laughs> Find a topic. But help guiding them to choice, giving them yeah. giving them the the bowling bumpers, the yes. you know, the, so they can't go completely into the gutter, but they can bounce around a little bit on the way down the down the lane. Guidelines and guardrails, as they used to call them in corporate. Yes, <laughs> gross. <laughs> I know, right? And I mean, that's, that's like 
theory of creativity right there, man. People are going to be more creative in the box to some extent than just do something great. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's totally true. And this might be my excuse to like put in a good word for mind mapping, which is something oh, that yeah. I, I want to do mm-hmm. an episode on at some point. Uh, but for, for those, if you're not familiar with mind, you maybe already are, but if you're not familiar with mind mapping, it's kind of this concept. I think it was originally invented by a guy named Tony um, uh, Buzan. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm probably slaughtering his name. Um, but the, it's really just a way of brainstorming on paper originally. Uh, but there's lots of great tools out there for doing it now. So we're more kind of digital age. Uh, and I keep discovering new ones. You start with a central topic. And then you branch off. Literally, you create branches, nodes and mm-hmm. sub-nodes, parent nodes and child nodes. And you can do it with anything. And I, when I used it in class, I would demonstrate it on a, on a nonsense topic like where are we going to go on vacation or uh, what's my favorite, you know, dessert, you know, and you put dessert mm-hmm. at the middle of the page and then you branch your way out. You can use them to take notes. You can use them to explore ideas. And I think if you're trying to come up with a topic and you're like, I don't know what I do when I do something about music. I had a kid who that was mm-hmm. his scenario. He's like, okay, all right, cool. So uh, we, you know, got it going and mind mapped it out. And then he found out that what he really wanted to do was talk about how a particular genre had changed within a certain time frame. And he, you know, in terms of lyrical content and like, uh-huh. and look at the key artists from each year and look at how they had evolved, which was kind of a big project when he got down to it. But he, he didn't know that at the beginning. At the beginning, he just wanted to do something about Whatever it was. I well, and even if it's a big project, you're still far more invested in. Yeah. In well, then you can cut it down. He's like, you know what? I don't think I can do it for 10 years. I thought I could do it for 10 years. I think we can't do it for 10 years. It's going to be five. It's like, and it's going to have to be three uh-huh. bands, not five bands. It's like, okay, cool. But we got to that because, you know, he had thought a little more deliberately about it. And again, that writing to learn thing, that thinking on paper thing mm-hmm. um, yeah. becomes a useful tool. We feel like we're giving them tools instead of just forcing them to write essays about Hemingway. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, in some of those, I also have loved doing, um, I think it was Kelly Gallagher came up with this, but they called them article tastings or story tastings, novel tastings. So I would do it with articles. So I would give them the first two pages of an article mm-hmm. and really wide range of articles and let them read just those first few pages, not tell them how long it is, not tell them any of those things, but... Just say, you're going to be spending the next four weeks with this while you learn how to summarize. And you're going to be regurgitating information from this, and you're going to be rephrasing information from this, and you better like it. So yeah. <laughs> so, so read the first few pages. Decide which one of these you want to know more about, that you want to take a little yeah. further. And it allowed them to—I had students that would end up accidentally choosing, you know, the 30-page long— thing when the others some of them were three pages five pages um, yeah did they feel cheated later no oh. and they, they did. that's what was great is they didn't actually yeah, they, they were yes and the students who ended up with ones that were only a few pages were like oh i wanted to I'm read disappointed. more and yeah. like and this is hard to summarize because this is short and this is you know but it was really nice to they were got really engaged in it and so it allowed them to it, it was idea. another way for me to give guardrails to the choice, but give mm-hmm. them some some latitude where I still had some control over yeah. <laughs> what was being summarized. So I knew if they were summarizing it correctly, but also yeah. it gave them that choice and being able – and I've done it um, online as well. 
where I took the first pages of all those and made one PDF with the first pages. And they then took a poll afterwards Mm -hmm. of which ones they wanted to read. And then I would then I would send out the article. So I was able to I've done it face to face and then done it um, in asynchronous. And it worked pretty well, actually. Well, every once in a while, they decide they want to read something else. And I'm okay if they want to change. But they but then they're making the choice to change later. You know, they're, they're doing the double work to catch back up. Well, and I love that both of those like techniques that you guys have used. I mean, what great ways to help students really understand the beginnings of research. I mean, if they head to Mullins and open up one search, they are going to be so much better off after doing an activity like the mind mapping or an activity like, you know, having participated in just briefly introductions to articles. They're going to know that it's going to be so much easier to write and research than if they've never done any of that. And they go to a one search and just type in, you know, type in the phrase music. How the heck are you supposed to know after that? You know, (laughs) and you, Mullins has great librarians. They'll get them to the same places, but the more ways we can give students those portals and access to do to those skills, the better. Yeah. You've given them more context or you've given them more keywords that they, that, that will spring to mind when they're starting to do their stuff. And for that, that, that uh, annotated bibliography thing from earlier that we were talking about, you've given them a, a, a foot into the the pool of that conversation mm-hmm. that is research in any field, you know? Um, yeah. Because, you know, if you just say, go find five articles on this thing, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big lift if you've never done that before. And again, in a face-to-face class, you're standing there with them, you're standing there over them, you can be there, and they're more likely to read it. If you've given them time in class to read, yeah. they're going to read it. It's harder to it. just not. But when... It's an online class. You they you have to set this up so that they can build those habits for themselves, so that they yes. can so that they can create those um, those skills. Well, and reading and writing are so interconnected. Like I know we've got workshops that are kind of by request class workshops, and one of our most popular ones is on reading skills, where we go through you know skimming, scanning, and then we also talk about. There's there's exigence. It's in there too because if you if students are learning how to be agentive readers, they're going to enjoy it better, be better at it, and then also be better writers because they understand the framework, the genre, the structure of of reading. Oh, the you know the introduction and conclusion tell me this. You know the starting and ending sentence of paragraphs tell me this. You know here's good signal phrases. All those things really roll together. They have to. That's just, you know, it's both sides of the communication, the reading and the writing. I want to shoehorn this in because you did some good research for this episode, Amelie, and I ended up <laughs> looking at it. Unlike most of my appearances on podcasts, I actually looked at the stuff. These come from this, uh, um, what is it called? The WAC the Clearinghouse. WAC Clearinghouse, yes, yeah. Writing across the curriculum. Clearinghouse, that's at Colorado State University. And a couple that I looked on on the list, there was a particular there's a PDF there. You guys can go find it. We'll put it in the show notes um, of alternative paper assignments. So we've talked a lot about how to make paper, like more traditional research papers better by breaking out and front-loading the process. But if you're just looking for different ideas of different types of writing assignments to do, um, they had a great list. And a lot of these can easily be you know, modified to whatever context you want to that, that struck me. There was this great one. Um, uh, 
whether you ask the students to write a three-page paper to Copernicus, Copernicus shows back up, and you're explaining to him why we don't subscribe to his cosmological worldview anymore. Um, so that that's genius, and we could use it with anybody, anybody, any person from history, important or unimportant, explaining to them mm-hmm. why they're still, why they're enduringly important, why they're not important, why we've moved on. Uh, and the entry event for that is you show them clips from Bill and Ted. <laughs> there, you go, there you go. I mean, this one plays well for history, for science, for regular writing classes. And I feel like that's an easier uh, road in uh, than a lot of assignments we might give somebody. We can we can picture um, someone who's out of date. They've shown up uh, there hundreds of years in the past, and we need to bring them There's up to our audience. Yeah, we've got an idea for audience. And the other one, we kind of touched on this earlier, was about students in an American history class um, pitching an idea, or actually they were just pitching an event, describing an event in history to two different, wildly different audiences. And they got to turn Mm -hmm. both of those in. One's to uh, a a classroom full of like third graders or something, and the other is to your computer science roommate. And you would would use wildly different diction and uh, levels of complexity in those assignments. And so it gets you thinking about audience because that – you just want to say over and over and over, read the room. But sometimes they don't know what the room is. You know, right. like if we're talking about the room that is scholarly discourse on a particular topic, well, they have no experience with that until they've actually gone and read through your tasting idea some of the research mm-hmm. that's out there. That's yeah. it's it's not surprising that they don't know it. In a lot of ways, I I feel like sometimes as it's important to remember if you're teaching writing in either an English class or any class. To not be that guy, my high school um, algebra two teacher, great guy, really great at at doing algebra two, not great at explaining algebra two because he uh-huh. couldn't remember back when yes. he didn't know how to do it. And well, that's a real thing. That, oh, I've seen that in both mm-hmm. in in writing teachers and in that's a lot in math teachers, but yeah. in writing teachers of this complete. I'm not sure that it's not so much that they can't remember back. It's that it came naturally to them in some way because <laughs> right. they yes. read all the time right. or because math made sense at, for some reason at some level earlier on. And so there isn't this yeah. there isn't this time of struggle that they can cast their minds back to. Yes. They just Right. Yeah. Well, finding well, some way to yeah. get into the mindset of what it's yeah. like for someone for whom this doesn't come naturally um, is well, important and tricky. Sorry, I was going to say, also, I think it's important to remember that, well, to remind the students that they have a lot of the skills they need. You know, I hear a lot of times, well, my students can't write. They are just always on social media. They're doing this, they're doing that. And really, it's, do you know how many skill sets they've built up doing that? How many rhetorical skill sets? Like you said, introduce them to that new scholarly community. And then they are great at knowing you know, how to switch tones, dialects, audiences, content to fit a specific audience. They are, they're chameleons. (laughs) They can just enter any space. So it's a matter of letting them know that they do have lots of the skill sets they need. They're just learning a new space. And that's a lot less intimidating than you're coming at this from a blank slate and I'm going to teach you everything. Right. I would be very interested to see how students... Um, styles change in how they write between different social media form formats. Mm-hmm. Like what, yeah. what their captioning for for images looks like on on um, Instagram. How not that they use Facebook anymore because Facebook is for abuelas. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> My stu- students told me that they're like, miss. <laughs> Facebook is for abuelas. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, as my as my social media savvy friend one time said I took I was at, at Barnes and Noble and I saw a book and it was uh, it was it said Facebook for seniors and I posted a picture of it on Facebook <laughs> just scratched out Facebook and he wrote, and he wrote his comment was so just regular Facebook then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I mean how they what and I use Facebook heavy user no, Facebook. Yeah. what does <laughs> Snapchat what Snapchat looks like what that, that you, good, know, you know if they don't if they're struggling with the idea of a genre there it is you sure. know they, they yeah. understand that you post different sorts of things to Instagram than you do to you know LinkedIn if yep. they have one the two uh, sure. you know Snapchat or whatever they get that there are generic expectations. Yeah, I mean even the word cringy that my <laughs> my children tell me I am all the time. <laughs> the fact that they know the word cringy means they know conventions because I'm breaking the conventions exactly. by being cringy. What is it to be cringy? But to to not understand and to uh, to break even without knowing it the conventions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we can let them in. We can invite them in to other uh, domains of of writing and reading and having a conversation. They're familiar with writing and reading and having a conversation. They just, yes. you know, they're not familiar with it in the context of scholarship. And why would they? Why would they be? Uh, sure. You know, until you until you are familiar with that, you're not familiar with it. You don't know that it exists. Well, I really like that you brought up the WAC Clearinghouse as well, because that's the that I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, right. no matter what class you're teaching, you're teaching it because you are a subject matter expert on that on that class. Exactly. And so you don't have to reinvent the wheel of how to engage students through writing. There's so many resources, software programs, et cetera, out there that you can match to your needs and adapt, like you mentioned. Yeah, that way it's 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 quite a resource. I was I was like, well, why didn't I think of that? I, if I were teaching writing, which I'm not, uh-huh. but if I were again, <laughs> I mean. There's some good stuff there. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dana, for jumping in here with us and talking about writing all across the curriculum and choice (laughs) and all the various directions uh, that we went. Thank you for listening to the Pedagogy Toolkit. And don't forget to subscribe. 